Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. So we're going to get right into it today. Uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And uh, we will do our scripture reading from there, and uh, as is our tradition, if you are physically able, would you please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? Um, I don't know, I feel a little bit like the Gospel of John is, this is just such a, a tremendous book in the Bible. As a preacher, I, I feel like, like a surfer at Pipeline right now, or like um, a, a rock climber at Yosemite or something. I'm so excited uh, for, for what God's going to speak to us. And um, This is the wave of all waves here in John 1. Let's read this together, the prologue to the Gospel of John. John 1, verse 1 through 18, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Here's what God's Word says. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. This is God's word to which we say, thanks be to God. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. It is truly a blessing to us to have before us, Lord, this account, this life-giving account of you, Jesus. We are so thankful for the gospel of John. And I pray this morning that this time would feel so fruitful because of how you worked. That's what I ask, God, for your, for your spirit to fill me to make up where I'm weak, to make me strong, to communicate your heart, to speak to all of us. Would you even give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us? We invite you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. All right. 
So here, as we get into John, the Gospel of John, I've entitled this message appropriately, simply, Jumping In to John's Gospel. That's what we got today. Jumping In to John's Gospel. That's what we're doing here. We just read there the prologue to this incredible book. And um, as we jump into John's Gospel this morning, there's an important principle that I think we need to start with. And it's uh, just simple advice that we get in life uh, to not jump into anything blindly. You shouldn't jump into a, maybe you had to give someone advice like this before, or you received it. You were jumping into a relationship blindly, and they were like, yeah, he looks good on Instagram, but give it some time, maybe get to know him, right? Or jumping into a job blindly, or how about this one, a hobby blindly. Again, social media makes it look so easy. Uh, for me recently, I, I, um, I have been taking up the sport of uh, bicycling, cycling, biking, bike riding, and not in the cool way. Like, I don't have the outfit and the shoes and the aerodynamic helmet um, or the bike. <laughs> um, so I'm not, like, going up and down A1A, but I have three kids. And one of the most practical ways uh, to help uh, get my wife's uh, sanity back is to, it's a great way to get out of the house with the kids and give her, depending on how far we ride, how ambitious I'm feeling. Um, and it's, it's, it does take ambition to do these rides with the kids. So Judah's got his two-wheeler now, and so he's, he's got it down. And, and Evie just got a new bike for Christmas with the training wheels. That's my second. And then Penny, our, our youngest, under two, she just sits right there with dad in the back. And just sometimes I forget she's even there. I'm like, oh, hey, I have a third kid. Um, and it's like herding cats uh, doing these, uh, these Pelotons together. Um, and um, it's interesting. It's interesting. So uh, we, we were very ambitious a couple weeks ago. We did a ride. We usually go to Joseph's house. He's our neighbor. We go see him. Or the other day we did a, a ride. Me and, me and Jude and Evie was in the back. And we did a trip to Meisner. And so that was definitely, like, we were crossing some streets. That was, um, pray for us. Pray for us. Um, and so uh, we did, we were, and we're finding like all the trails. There's the El Rio Trail by FAU. Beautiful rides. And so um, so I have, you know, a, a simple little road bike um, that was given to me, and it has the car seat on the back. And, you know, I thought to myself, it's new year, new me. I'm trying to live an active lifestyle here. And so I decided I'm going to ride my bike to work. So I did. Um, I woke up one morning, and I was like, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will ride my bike to work and hopefully not die. And so I, um, I would just jumped jumped into it. I, I said, baby, I'm doing this today. I, and before she could talk me out of it, I was out the door and I put my backpack on the baby seat thing and strapped it in. It was nice. And I'm like 100 feet from my house. And I just, I realize it's the windiest day of 2020. So just so bad that when you're riding, it's howling in my ears. I come up to the first intersection, the crossing guard's there, and it's about a 30, should be about a 30-minute ride. Depends on who you are, I guess. But, um, and the crossing guard's like, horrible day to ride a bike, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it is, you know. But, you know, I, this is just my life. And, you know, but she had no idea it was like my first day ever doing this. Um, and so the whole way there, it's this uphill or upwind ride. Um, I felt like the guys in Dumb and Dumber where they're just on the scooter. It's a Christian movie. Um, but so 
just this horrible experience. Now, on the way back, I was like a paper boy. I was flying. I felt so good. But just on the way there, I look at the weather, and uh, for the Apple weather app, it just has the wind symbol. And so, anyway, don't do what Andrew does. He jumped into something blindly. I just got excited and jumped in. Now, we certainly, if we're not going to do that with riding a bike to work, <laughs> uh, you could probably see me, by the way, this week if you're on Glades. I'll just, just keep an eye out. But um, we're certainly not going to do that with the Gospel of John, right? We're not going to run into a book that's so cherished, that's so rich, that's so valuable, that's so life-giving and is revolutionary for a church like ours. We, we don't want to jump into that blindly. And so this morning as we get into John, I want us to take a minute to observe some things with what we're studying. We're going to get to the prologue here, but just as a backdrop uh, today for this incredible journey ahead of us in John's gospel, I want to share three things, three important observations as we jump into this book. I want to look at who the author of this book is, first and foremost. It's a lot of uh, exciting stuff there, important stuff there. We want to look at the angle of this book, what this book actually has a has as its specific focus for us uh, when it comes to showing us Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to look in this account at the introduction going into uh, this incredible letter. So let's start right there. First and foremost, as we get into the Gospel of John this morning, the first point or the first observation we want to make is we want to look at the identity of John's author. Who wrote the Gospel of John? And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of agreement on this. The, the name John uh, itself is used in here in the beginning of John the Baptist, but uh, there's, it's, it's kind of like um, undisagreeably held that the author of um, this book, the identity of John's author, is none other than John the Apostle. So this is John the Apostle who authored this book. There's a few different Johns in the Bible, and also like John the's. You know, you have John the Baptist, but well, this is John the Apostle uh, as the, the, uh, the writer behind this account uh, John was the youngest of Jesus' 12 disciples. This is um, important to back up and see this stuff, the one who's writing this. Uh, he was called to follow Jesus at age, some scholars believe, age 16 or 17. This guy's maybe a junior in high school, and he's working for his father's fishing business. He was one of the two sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, Zebedee Fishing Co. is what he worked for with his brother James. And this young disciple left it all to follow his rabbi. He dropped his nets and followed Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to see some more details surrounding that individual call of John's. But John is the author of this book. And not only was John one of Jesus's 12 disciples, we actually see that John was one of Jesus's closest friends. Within the 12, we know Jesus had the three, right? He had his inner circle of his inner circle. Um, he had James he had Peter, James, and John, and sometimes Andrew was allowed to tag along, you know, thanks Andrew, right? Sometimes Andrew was allowed to tag along for the journeys, but it was Peter, James, and John that were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John that are so central to so many of Jesus' uh, interactions and conversations. Well, John was a part of that inner circle, and some would say that out of that inner circle, it's possible that no one was closer to Jesus than John. Certainly, we see Jesus' relationship with Peter, installing Peter as this leader of the church, restoring Peter to shepherd the church. We see, of course, with, with James, James will go on to be a pillar and a backbone to the church. But there's something about 
John. Maybe it was his age, right? Jesus looked on at the bunch, and here was the youngest one. And Jesus kind of having that big brother fatherly heart towards John, he brings him extra close. But that's what you see. You see this special relationship between Jesus and John. There's this great example of this that really gives a window into their relationship in John 13. It's a fascinating story, and I think we'll get there. In John 13, um, Jesus is at, is at a table reclining with his disciples. They're hanging out, having a meal, drinking some wine, eating some bread, having a good time together, enjoying each other's company. When Jesus kind of changes the mood, he, he says that he, there's this sense of anguish that comes over Jesus' heart, and he says that one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And it's always, I've always read that as like a weird interaction because they're like, well, who's it going to be, you know? And uh, Judas like gets, it's like really like awkward with Judas because it's like, who's it going to be? And they're like, well, whoever takes this bread that I've dipped. And Jesus is like, here you go, Judas. You know? um, it's like, all right. Um, but the Bible tells us that at that moment, Judas, who was the disciple that betrayed Jesus, that, that knew Jesus personally. I mean, you think about the betrayal of Jesus. Judas knew the secrets of Jesus. He knew the ways of Jesus. Judas knew that Jesus wouldn't put up a fight, right, when he was arrested. And it's this man who's in Jesus' inner circle. That's betrayal, someone that uses what they know about you against you. And Judas, the Bible says, he walks out into the night. And we'll see in John that John really loves to play with these two polarities, light and, uh, and darkness, day and night. And so it's a, it's a picture saying, here goes Judas. Judas had already grown bitterness in his heart. Judas had already grown frustration with Jesus, probably annoyed with his teachings, annoyed with his ways, loving money. He turns on Jesus and he walks away. He rejects the love of Jesus. This is Judas. And he turns away into the night. Now, to contrast that, in that same passage, you have John. John the disciple, the youngest one, the author of this book. And the Bible says that at the same time that Judas is rejecting Jesus' love and walking out the door, John is there, the Bible says, reclining on Jesus. Like two best bros hanging out. This is what's going on. It says that John is laying his head. Some, there's so many different translations about this. It literally means that uh, the word used is his, he's, he's resting his head on Jesus' bosom. Not exactly a word you use this week without laughing, at least. But you, we certainly don't use that word commonly. And, it, and it's a word that has poetic meaning to it. It's charged. The idea is like inside of someone's chest. Like you're so close to them that, listen, you can hear their heartbeat. And there's John, so close to Jesus that he could hear Jesus' heartbeat, leaning back. In a world that's always pushing us to lean in, don't we need to be like John and just lean back sometimes and be with Jesus? And what a contrast, isn't that? Here's Judas rejecting Jesus' love, and here's this young disciple, so close to Jesus, absorbing Jesus' love so near to Jesus, in relation with Jesus, that he could hear his very heartbeat. This is John, so close to Jesus. So uh, it, it brings a whole new light. Let me say this. This is important for us to recognize when we're going into a book like this. The Gospel of John is not just a book of someone who was a Christian in that time and was like, here are some things I've heard about Jesus. There's other Gospels that, that kind of match a similar profile. Luke, for example, he writes, it's a great Gospel as well, but Luke writes as someone investigating the life of Jesus. But when John writes this Gospel, he's writing about Jesus. 
Think about the person in your life, maybe the one or two people that you know the most. No one knows them like you know them, and imagine to write about them. That's what John is doing here. I think of, when I think about this, I think of um, another one of John's writings, and it's 1 John. So you have John's gospel. Hopefully right now you're not in 1 John. That can get a little confusing, but there's also 1 John. There's 2 John, and there's 3 John. John also will go on to write the book of Revelation. But in 1 John, look at the way that John describes the, the, his relationship to what he's proclaiming to people about Jesus. He says this in 1 John 1, 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, the things that he's proclaiming, it's things which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Do you see his up close and personal relationship with Jesus? He's saying these, these things we're proclaiming to you. By the way, this is the only kind of witness that we can give as Christians, right? Come on, we've all done the witness where we just say what someone else said. Oh, I heard people say this about God. I need to say this. But then there's giving a witness in relation that, uh, about Jesus that comes straight from your relationship with him. Do you know what I'm talking about? And that's what John is saying. John's saying, that's what I have to give you. I don't have to give you some hand-me-down, copy-and-paste mumbo-jumbo. What I have to say to you about Jesus is something that I've heard, I've seen with my own eyes. I've laid there on Jesus' own chest. I've been close with him. I've watched him. My hands have handled what I'm proclaiming to you, the word of life. Even in the passage that we just read, if you notice, verse 14, John says, we beheld his glory. John's saying, I've beheld all that there is to see with Jesus. And you actually get this in John's account. John, out of all the gospels, is the most detail-oriented account. I love it. Uh, It's so detail-oriented, which kind of goes into the face of people that say that the Gospels were made up years later as kind of a fabricated story for the church to gain power and the disciples, you know, to whatever, take control, which just gets flipped on its head right away when you read the Gospels. And one of the things you see first and foremost is that the disciples, you know, if if I was writing a story and, and I wanted to shape it to make me you know, for power, I probably would edit out all the parts that made me look bad. You know what I mean? Like, if I was Peter, I'd be like, let's get rid of the whole rooster thing. Let's not do that. Like, that's not going to go well. So, it's interesting. Now, the other thing that uh, C.S. Lewis says that if this was, if this was fictional, so if John was writing this gospel and making up details, like how many fish that they catch when they put their nets down, or how many days of a walk it was, these specific details that John gives— If John were to be making this up, he would have been pioneering a form of fictional literature that didn't even exist yet. Like this kind of literature where you make up stories and you give details in the story of fiction, it didn't even exist in that time. There's no question. John writes with such detail, and this is why, because what those details do is, listen, they show the memory of someone who was there. Maybe you can do this. Like some of the most significant moments in your life, you have random memory of some of the details surrounding that event in, in ways that other people wouldn't. Like, how did you remember that? I was there. And this stuck out to me. That's what's really peculiar about this gospel. Now, this is the reason why at the end of John's gospel, in chapter 21, John is going to say this. He's going to say, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So what we're about to get into here, what John is writing about here, it's something we can rely on. This is a a first-hand eyewitness account of one of the best friends of Jesus, John. 
Now, of all that John witnessed, I think one of the most significant facts about his life and his relationship with Jesus is this. John was the only disciple to witness the crucifixion. Only John. Jesus said that, as it was prophesied, that when you strike the shepherd, what's going to happen? Sheep are going to scatter. And that happened. Judas his own way, Peter his own way, the disciples their own way, but there's faithful young John at the foot of the cross. And remember what happens. What does Jesus tell him? John, you see Mary, behold your mother. Jesus is taking care of his family affairs as he is bearing the sin of the, of the whole world. Amazing. Woman, behold your son. There's John at the foot of the cross. If there's anything that John witnessed that marked his life for eternity, it was firsthand beholding the greatest display of love ever. By the way, if there's anything that will mark our lives for eternity, it's going to be seeing the same thing. I wonder if we've had that same kind of vision of the cross. Have you been at the foot of the cross before? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen on the cross both your sin being placed on him and God's love covering you? Now, John saw this, and it's not uh, an exaggeration at all. It's an understatement to say that John gets radically transformed by the love of God. John is radically transformed by God's love. We, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is the only thing that really can transform us. The law can tell us what to do, but it's the love of God that changes us, that changes our hearts. And this is, John is a case study of this. John is transformed by the love of God, beholding the love of God in Christ on the cross. John was there. He sees it. He becomes different. Now, I think two interesting ways, just two out of many, I'm sure, that we see this transformation in John's life is I would say first, it's the way that John, we see this in the way that John defines himself in the gospel of John. Uh, the first thing that transformed in John's life because of seeing the cross was his identity changed. His identity changed. How, when he saw Jesus, he saw himself different. So that in the Gospel of John, you actually, you never have John referring to himself as John the Apostle. In fact, what you have is John referring to himself, listen to this, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Five or six times in John's gospel. Imagine being so transformed by God's love that it becomes your very identity. I wonder, does God's love define you? It's a difference, there's a difference between knowing about God's love. Are you with me? And that love defining who you are. What a great way to be defined, amen? So many of us are searching for identities that we have in Jesus. He's given us his love. He's poured out his love upon us. John is transformed by this. His very identity changed so much so that he defines himself as, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. No, I don't know if he's saying like more than the others. He could be. He's a young guy. At one point, he makes, the, he makes a point to say that he outruns Peter to the tomb. The disciple who Peter, who Peter loved got there first because back then, you know, men were competitive. <laughs> you know, go figure. But... Here's John. It's more than that, though. This is a guy who's been transformed by God's love. Now, there's another title that John gets throughout church history. 
Not only does he refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but the church at large, they refer to John as the apostle of love. This is who John becomes. He becomes a man who's just known by love. On his, uh, it's reported that even on his deathbed, as they're gathered around John, they're asking this question, John, what words shall we bring to the churches? What, what's your final, what, what, what does John have to say to the church? John grows to become a pillar in the church. And there on his deathbed, John, what can we say to the church? And John's response is, little children, love one another. John, what do you, what, what's your sermon? What's your zinger? You know, what's the series we're going to build around it, right? John, what's your big theological point at the end of your life that you have to say? He says, love each other. And they reply, they reply to John, is that it? <laughs> and he says, it's enough. For our Lord commanded us, it is enough. This is John's very identity and reputation. In fact, you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you get this feel. This guy's about love. Now, the reason why this is so significant is because if you read John in the gospel account, you see a completely different person. In fact, Jesus had a special name for John and his brother. Uh, John and James were nicknamed by Jesus. They were the sons of, of Zebedee, but Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Reminds me of like that motorcycle show, Sons of Anarchy, but it's like that back then. They were the sons of thunder. They were thr- thunderous. The idea was they were hotheads. Okay, They weren't defined by love. They were defined by wrath and anger. Anybody else, by the way, on that same journey? You kind of have that? You don't have to raise your hand, okay? But, but raise your heart, okay? Yeah. Um, we, we see this, man. They're, 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 that's why I love the Gospel of John because you know, a lot of times what we try to do is we make the mistake of looking at the Bible to see ourselves as the hero of the story and where, where we can see myself being awesome. But if we read the Bible correctly, we will see that Jesus is the hero of every story. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Okay, we don't beat Goliath. We're with the Israelites hiding behind the mountain, okay? Jesus is the hero. And when you read the, the Gospels, you get to find yourself in that same place where you're like, oh, that's why he saved me. That's why I needed a savior. I'm like John. And there's this great account that I think makes them super uh, relatable. In some ways, it was a bit extreme, but, you know, it's the story in, in Luke 9. We looked at it, uh, I think, two or... It might have been last week that we looked at Jesus setting his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He was resolved. And as they're passing through a nearby town, uh, he sends some, some, um, some runners ahead of him to go prepare the way as he's going to come into that town. And the, and the scripture tells us that they, that they didn't receive Jesus into that town. Now, we don't know why. A lot of assumptions are made. Oh, they didn't want his ministry? Could be. Could be. Now, there's a, the, the Bible does tell us there was actually like a prophetic reason. There was other things he had to do. It could have been full. We don't know why exactly he wasn't received. What we do know is the response of James and John when they got that news. Here's what they said. In light of the fact that there is no room for us in the inn, okay, they don't want to receive us into their town. John says, when it says, when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. And I just, I, at this point, you just wondered, like, you just like, gee, poor Jesus, right? Like, he's just like, okay. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Did you catch that? Did you catch anything I've said ever? Okay. One or two of my teachings, right? Like, so here they are, right? They're, they're passionate. They're zealous. And, and, and even here in Luke, they're going, man, the natural reaction to rejection is to follow up with retribution, Right? 
And no, no, here's John at the foot of the cross. And though he was someone, and like we are someone who probably deserves the same fire, here's Jesus absorbing that fire. Here's Jesus displaying love. And that transforms John. He becomes the apostle of love. Just amazing how God's love will change you. Change you from being someone who gets defined by God's love. It'll change you to be someone who is defined by others as love. Um, I want more of that in my life. Anybody else? I, I, I want to be someone that's defined by others by looking like God's love. Uh, and, and I don't mean love in like a man be panby, you don't tell the truth kind of way, but I mean in such a way that people sense that God loves them by the way that we respond uh, as those who have been loved by God. So John, um, we, we see that he goes on to become a pillar in the church, like I said, and he goes on to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. History tells us that, uh, we'll see at the end of John, that Jesus uh, said that John was going to be the one disciple that wasn't going to be martyred. Remember that? He tells Peter that. He's like, well, what about him? He's like, it's not up to you, okay? You're going to be crucified, Peter, upside down. That's what happens to Peter. Uh, martyred. But John, Jesus said, he's not going to be martyred. Jesus was going to preserve John's life because John had a revelation from Jesus to receive called the book of Revelation. So history tells us that Domitian, the emperor of Rome, um, went to execute John by boiling him in oil, but was unsuccessful. So he ends up exiling John to the Isle of Patmos. Isn't that awesome? Like if God wants something to happen through your life, guess what? It's not up to you or anyone else. Right? So John goes to the Isle of Patmos and he receives the book of Revelation. By the way, singular, the Revelation. Okay, church pet peeve. Have you been reading Revelations lately? I didn't know there was two, okay? Sorry. It's a little, sorry. Son of thunder. Um, so, so John, he goes on to write the book of Revelation. And somewhere uh, around 100 A.D., 90 to 100 A.D., John writes this gospel. Now, here's what we know. John is one of how many? How many? Four gospels, right? John is one of four gospel accounts. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the last of the four. It's commonly referred to as the fourth gospel. And each of these different gospels give a complementary look at the person of Jesus. It's beautiful. Um, Sometimes people use the Gospels against each other, and they say, you know, this Gospel says this, but this Gospel doesn't include that detail. It says this. But if you really compare what these Gospels have to say about Jesus, you, you don't find contradiction. You find complement. You have one Gospel including details that the other didn't, and vice versa. It's complementary. It'd be like if you said, this podium is wood, and I said, no, it's black. Maybe it's both. Yeah, okay. So that's the idea of the different gospel accounts, beautiful accounts of Jesus' life. Um, now, I want to say this, though. Out of the fourfold gospels, John's gospel that we're studying here is particularly unique. It's particularly distinct. Um, so much so that the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been commonly referred to as the synoptic, synoptic gospels. They give very um, coherent and consistent and familiar accounts of a lot of the same things. There are chunks and percentages of their Gospels that are different, but uh, mostly, John over here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, have a lot in common, but not John. 
out of the four, John sort of sits in a unique category, an extra unique category of his own. Uh, let, let me give you some examples of why this is. In the Gospel of John, we're not going to read anything about a birth account of Jesus. There's no Bethlehem, there's no inn, there's no baby in a manger, swaddling clothes, angels, there's not, none of that. There's no birth announcement, nothing. No birth account in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have one. In, in John's gospel alone, there's no baptism of Jesus. There's no temptation of Christ in the, in the wilderness. In John's gospel, there's nothing of a last supper. There's nothing of a wrestle in Gethsemane. There's no ascension. This is interesting uh, for what it's worth. There's also in John's gospel, no healing of people possessed by evil spirits or demons. So when you look at the content of John's gospel, just unique as to what it excludes, what it doesn't include. This is also really interesting. In John's gospel, there's not one parable. Mostly how Jesus taught, right? He taught in these beautiful, wonderful stories that would provoke the imagination and kind of leave you as the reader to go, wow, the kingdom of God is fascinating, right? Or Jesus would speak in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He often speaks in these like one-liner zingers, like these really vivid and clear and powerful statements, but in John's gospel, it's interesting, Jesus' speeches are often whole chapters long. And they're couched often in real-time events and conversations. This is just John, very unique. Now, I would submit to you today that the reason why there is unique content in John's gospel is because John has a unique intent. The content is because of the intent. There's a reason why John excludes some things. And there are many scholars that actually believe it's, it's pretty commonly held that John was aware of the other three Gospels. They were circulating. He had read them. And so John goes, he goes to task on a new Gospel. And he's got his own content that has its own intention behind it. Let's look at that next. What is the intent of John's angle? John writes this book, but what is his intent behind writing this book. He has a unique and specific focus. Well, uh, the good news about this is that we don't have to try to figure it out for ourselves. Uh, this is one of the best gifts of a lot of what John writes. John is always, he's going to put his cards on the table. And when he writes First John, he's going he's to say, the reason why I wrote you this is so that you know you're saved. It's like, well, thanks, John. I'll read it. You know, like that. John will give us revelation. He'll say, so that you can read this and be blessed. So John writes every letter with his clear intention right out on the table for us to know why it's written. Same with John's gospel. The intent of John's angle is actually given to us in John chapter 20. In the epilogue of this story, so spoiler alert, here we go to the end. In John chapter 20, John tells us this. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. This is John 20 verse 30. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book that I've given you. But these are written, notice this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John tells us. Here's why, Solus Church, you have the Gospel of John here for the next few months. I love what he says, first and foremost. Jesus has done, there's a lot that he did that I didn't include. I love that. There's many other things that he did that the Spirit wasn't inspiring me to include. In fact, he goes on to say, Jesus has done so many things. John 21 says that if uh, they were all written down one by one, I suppose that even the world itself, maybe we could say today the internet itself, could not contain the books that would be written. So John says, there is so much that Jesus did. We didn't include everything. There's so much that there, the world 
would not be a large enough library to contain all that he did. So what I have to write you, with all that Jesus did, it's, it's with a specific intent in mind. I'm giving you John's gospel for a reason. He says, the reason why I've included these signs specifically, there are many signs that Jesus did, but the reason he says why I've, I've chosen to give you these signs, to show you these examples from the life of Jesus, is for you to come to a saving knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And notice this, and through your believing, in the Greek, through your continual, ongoing faith in Jesus as the Son of God, you will have life in his name. Maybe that's really what God wants to do in our church. Maybe a lot of us have lost sight of Jesus. And so because we've lost sight, we've lost life. John says, no, 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 I've given you this account that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. It's all about believing here in John's gospel, seeing who Jesus is in truth, that he is the Son of God. Now, I want to say that this is John's specific angle, and in fact, you see this. Like, everything that John is including, you, you, as you read it, you go, oh, okay, it's showing me that Jesus is God the Son. It, it just becomes more and more clear. I think one specific example, of, uh, one of many, is, is as he says, the signs. In all the other Gospels, whenever Jesus accomplishes a sign, the reason behind why it's often included, it seems, is to showcase Jesus' compassion, which is an important thing to know about God, that he's a God of compassion. He feels when we hurt. And that's often the focus, that Jesus healed this man, he did this thing for compassion, but it's only in John's gospel that the focus is the glory of God. Everything that Jesus does, he tells his sisters, hey, don't worry, Lazarus is dead, but it's for, you're going to see the glory of God. Everything that Jesus has to do in the gospel of John exists as a showcase for his glory. That's what John says. We, in John 1, we read it, we beheld his glory. It's the, the, the brightness emanating from his person. It's the rays of the sun of God. It's showing us the full weight of who he is. He does what he does to receive the glory, to be glorified, for us to look on and go, wow, that was Jesus. He is awesome. That's the whole point. That's what John is, is getting at. And, and if this already hasn't been a, um, a, a classroom-like uh, message, Nerd out with me a bit uh, more here for a second. Uh, there's this great, listen, this is speculation, but can we, have, can we have some Bible fun for a second? Okay, good. Um, there's this great uh, tradition that holds um, that uh, each of the Gospels, they have their own uh, representation. There are these uh, four cherubim, these four uh, creatures, these beings that are described in Ezekiel that are also described in the book of Revelation. When John sees uh, the throne of God, this is what he has to say. This is what we have to look forward to, some really good sights ahead. We get to see some cool stuff. Um, that's why I'm a Christian. I just want to see cool stuff. Um, it says this, John's vision. He says, around the throne of, of, of Jesus' throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures. That's what John sees in heaven. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. The third living creature has the face of a man. And the fourth living creature is like an eagle in flight. Now, Ezekiel's version, they have four different faces. So this, some say maybe this is, John is just seeing these, this, these sides of these angels, of these creatures. You have a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Lion, ox, a man, and eagle. Now, this is a really cool connection. Church history holds that each of these 
creatures, they represent the four evangelists. Check this out. Matthew represents the lion. Jesus is the king of the Jews. More times than any other gospel, Matthew says, thus it was fulfilled. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of? That's right, that's Matthew. Mark, you see Jesus as the ox. He is the servant who's come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke, you see Jesus is the man. He's this man who claims to be God. Luke goes, i got to investigate this. Theophilus gives him some money. He's the benefactor. He goes on this journey to investigate this man who claims to be God. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is referred to not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man. And then John's Gospel, you have the eagle. You have the divine being above it all. The Bible will talk in John a lot about Jesus coming from above, coming from the sky. There's like some more dorky things with this too, like, like, um, like how eagles can look directly into the light. Like it's just, a, by the way, if you read your Bible, first of all, like this great book, like you should, bestseller, read it. It's so good. It's so good. It's such a good book, okay? And, and if people think the Bible's boring, tell them to read the Bible, like, it's amazing. It's like one author put this thing together, okay? John's specific focus, Jesus is the eagle. Jesus is the son of God. And that through your believing, you may have life in his name, knowing him as the son of God. And this is all throughout. You see, this is John's focus. The reason why John doesn't includes what he includes is for us to see this. So um, in John's gospel... You have uh, what are known as the seven I am statements of Christ. Have you heard of this? The complete statements of Christ. We know God, when he appeared to Moses, and Moses asked him, who should I tell Pharaoh, who, who should I say is sending me? God said, tell him I am sends you. I am. I am that I am. There's a point in John 8 where Jesus almost gets stoned with stones okay, by, by the Pharisees because Jesus said before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. I am. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. Now, but Jesus, listen, he's the son of God. Jesus comes to show us God. This is the whole theme of our series. I am. I am. Jesus is the I am. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. We read there in verse 18 that no man has seen God at any time. No one. But just as John was laying on the chest of Jesus, same word, in the bosom of Jesus, Jesus has always lived close to the heart of the Father. And this Jesus has come to reveal the Father to us. He is the image of God. So much so that when Thomas says to Jesus in John 14, Jesus, would you show me the Father? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father image. He's the image of the unseen. We get the idea now, right? When we go through the gospel of John, we see God in the person of Jesus, the image of God. Now, this is so important because when it comes to our understanding of God, we are really, at the end of the day, we're left with the question of what image do I have? What's your image of God? Is it a mental image or is it a provided image? Is it your imagination or is it God's revelation? Right now, um, I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my, my kids before bed, slowly. Slowly. 
a lot of questions. It's a complex book. So we're reading right now The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it's scarier than I remember. So I'm like, good night, kids. You know, hopefully the white witch doesn't turn you into a stone. Have a good night, you know. Let's, let's pray. It's creepy. Um, so we're reading through it. And well, the part of the reason why it takes so long is because the book, from time to time, it's one of the classic ones that have the original artwork. And so every five pages, we get to the pictures. And what do you think, my kids? you think they want to just use their imagination? Thought, no, Dad, Dad, let me see the picture. And it's 10 minutes of, oh, look at the beaver. <laughs> and Evie and I go, he's creepy. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, but can I tell you, what they're longing for as I'm reading them is the same thing we're all longing for with God. Like, what they have without those images is they have their imagination, which is, tr- which is sufficient for them to, to come up with ideas. But when they, they realize that there's a picture of what it is we're reading, you know what they get? They get the truth. They're like, well, that's really what it is. Do you know what I'm saying? And so for a lot of us, we need to see Jesus that way. He's the image. Your understanding of God, is it, listen, is it an imaginary version of God? Probably. Every day I have to turn away from worshiping these gods that don't exist. Imaginary versions, gods of my own creating. It's been said that God made man in his image and man being a gentleman returned the favor. You know, it's actually what an idol is in the Old Testament. When you look at what an idol is, it's an image. It's man's creation of what we think God should be and what he's like. And this is what's amazing about Jesus. John tells us, listen, you don't have to use your imagination to know what God is like. You can, but don't be left to your imagination. You have an image. You have Jesus. No one has seen God at any time, but Jesus is the image of the unseen God. John says, that's why I'm writing you. I'm writing you so that when you see the life of Jesus, you see the I am. You see the I am come alive. You you go through the gospel of John and you see seven I am statements from Jesus. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm your sustainer. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Well, see, I'm the one that's going to illuminate your life. I am the door. I'm the one that gives you access to God. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. We did a whole series on this over a year ago. In Psalm 23, he's the one that is our caretaker. Jesus shows us that God is, he's come to bring us resurrection and life, John 11. Power over death even. I'm the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. He makes the way when there is no way. And he takes us there himself. Doesn't just give us a map, he is the way. And then in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. I am the source of your joy. I am the source of your fruit in life. Jesus comes to reveal the I am. He comes to show us what God is like, taking us beyond our imagination to a clear image, seeing God in truth. And when we see in this gospel, John doing this, he's going to give particular focus with all of these to the cross. Like, the cross is going to be what John is building towards. It's all about Jesus going to the cross. And, and which, by the way, I, I think we need to constantly have our eyes there. If we're wondering about God, if we're unsure about God, you've got to keep going to the cross. John will do that for us to see who Jesus is as the Son of God. Now, I want to, I want to give us a last thing here. And we're not going to be able to walk. Listen, we could do a whole sermon series just on John 1. 
Uh, these 18 verses, uh, William Barclay says this about John 1, 1 through 18. He says, the first chapter of John's gospel is one of the greatest adventures of religious thought ever, ever achieved. John 1, 1 through 8. We should seriously just call the series John 1. Like, that's what it should be. There's so much depth here. Uh, but I want to give a particular focus in this series as we're reading through John. What I really am hoping is for us to see God through Jesus. That's what I really pray for. That's why we want to spend time in John personally. That's why we want to ask God to show us Jesus personally. That's why we're going to read and what we're going to focus on as we go through this book is we're going to see who Jesus was. We're going to look at his life and make sure that we're not trying to make God align to what we think about him, but we are aligning who he is, what we think about him to who he really is in the person of Jesus. Now, I'll close with this last idea, and it's, it's John's introduction here. We're not going to be able to go through it all. But what we read earlier was John's introduction to this account. And um, this is a prologue that he gives, but it's not any prologue. It's, it's not like the average prologue you'll read in the, in, in the book you're reading right now. Uh, this is a prologue that is packed rich. We said already, just incredible um, adventure of religious thought. But it's packed rich with all the themes of John. So themes like light and life and, and grace and new birth and truth and the revelation of God in Jesus. That is John 1. It's packed with all those themes. But what I want to draw uh, our specific attention to is uh, how John intros this book, what we read, he does so with the backdrop of having a unique challenge. John knows there's already three Gospels, and any, any Jew could get the most out of any of those Gospels because they speak particularly to Jewish culture and the promise of the Messiah. But in 100 AD, by the time that John is writing this, you have this challenge that John faces. And what's that? You have that the, the fact that the church at this point is overwhelmingly non-Jewish. I'm a Gentile, say hey. All right. That's what's going on in the church. They say in 60 AD that you have 100,000 Gentiles for every Jewish believer. So so John, he he has this unique challenge before him. Okay, so I'm going to write a gospel. I want to focus on Jesus being the Son of God. And that through seeing Jesus, we can see God. He's God in the flesh, right? But how can I do this? I mean, what do I got to do? Do I got to take, you know, there's Jewish readers as well, but... You know, if I'm going to share the gospel with someone who's not Jewish, is, is the gospel, do I have to take them back through all of Israel's history? Certainly we want to go to the, the creation and the fall account. But what, what, do you, what do you do, you ever had this? What do you do when you're sharing the gospel with someone that knows nothing of a promised Messiah? That's, that's what John had. So, so here's what John does. I love this. He looks for, he looks for how Jesus is a savior in that culture. He looks at Greek culture, and, and he, he brilliantly reveals Jesus as the Savior of what was a, a common thought and a concept in, in Greek culture, and it was the conception of the Word. The Word. In Greek culture, the logos. We read it there. In the beginning was the Word. And uh, both Jewish and Greek culture had their own conceptions of the word. Of course, Israel, they knew God's word to be his very power, not just sounds, but power to make things happen. There's life and death in the power of the tongue. There's, there's you think of the great Winston Churchills of history that, that was able to move men with their very word. So Israel understood the power of God's word. But in Greek culture, it was the logos. The logos. It was this concept where they looked around, and these are non-Jewish um, thinkers, and they're looking around, and they're seeing this perfect order. They're, they're seeing this, this like crazy regularity to the fact that the sun goes up and it sets. 
and that there are these seasons. And there's just this, this mysterious order and regularity to the world we're living in. And so what was the solution? Where did this all come from? They said, the logos. The logos. And, and it doesn't just mean word, it means the reason. In other words, the mind behind it all. So, so the Greeks had some concept of there being a God whose mind was behind and beyond it all. And so it's to that culture that Jesus is writing about, uh, that, that John is writing about Jesus as the Son of God, that, Je- that John goes, yes, the logos, yeah, yeah. He says, in the beginning was the logos. You see it there? In the beginning was the logos. He was there. And listen, it's not just some random logos. He says, and the logos, the word, was with God and the word was God. He's bringing some theology to this. He goes, there's actually a God who created all this. You're right. The Logos is God. And even with his very words, he created everything. And he goes on to describe that. There's nothing that was made without him. He spoke everything into existence. In fact, as he spoke it all into existence, he didn't just speak it, create it, make man, and then go out to lunch and say, have fun, be fruitful, see you later. But he was to be the very source of the life he created. In him was life, he says, and that life was the light of man. Now, key word there is was, right? John is pointing to a, to, to a creator who's the logos behind it all, but he's pointing to a fall that occurred within humanity. That though God was create, created us to be our life source, we turned away from him, and even still to this day, we turn away from him as our life source. That's what sin is. I got this, not you. And then he talks about a man who came to bear witness of a light coming into the world. They pushed that light away. Darkness filled the earth. John will use darkness to describe the brokenness of this world. But it's into that darkness that, that a light came. A light came. So powerful that the darkness could not overcome it, which is true. You don't, you don't turn on the dark, right? You turn off... You turn off the lights, right? You turn on the light. Light overcomes the darkness. And John is playing on that idea, and he's saying, there's the word, he created it, man has fallen away from it, but this light has come into this darkness that's happened. And he sent before him a forerunner, John the Baptist, we'll look at him, he was the the witness of his light. But he describes how this man came into this world, this light came into this world, but he, he tells the sad story that his own didn't even receive him. Those that he created to be the source of their life, to be the very one that blesses them and fills them with joy and purpose, they rejected. He came to his own. He said, listen, you've fallen away from me, but I'm here to love you and bring you back into relationship. And there's still people to this day, people in this room who say, I still don't want that. No. And they reject Jesus like Judas did. They they turn their backs on Jesus. But he says, but as many as receive him and believe in him, there's this faith in him, they get to become children of God. So so John unpacks this and he says in verse 14, he says, and this word, this logos became, notice this, flesh and dwelt among us. It's amazing. The logos became, became flesh and bone, put on skin became a man. This is the incarnation. This is as much of a birth account as John will give. He'll just give the theology. He's like, okay, we could, we could do it. Matthew Mark already covered it. Let me tell you what was happening, okay? That baby being born at Christmas was God, the Logos, the creator, becoming a man. 
That's who Jesus is, God in the flesh. Now, this was very contradictory in that culture as well. There were these, there was Gnosticism was a big philosophy in that time. And what they believed was that the spiritual world and, and the physical world were at odds with each other. The physical world was evil. The spiritual world was good. Still forms of that today. And, and so they could never conceive of Jesus being both God and man. He had to be one or another. So there's actually these doctrines that, that at this time were floating around the church that said this. Jesus wasn't a man. He was just God appearing as a man, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, okay, or whatever new Disney character you like, okay? Um, but you see, that's, that's what it was. It was just him appearing. It just seemed like it was. But John says, no, no, no. God became a man in Jesus, the Son of God. And John says, I'm telling you, I know this because I saw it. He says he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. That's the word. He dwelt among us. In Israel, you had the tabernacle, which on the outside, this, it was just this temporary dwelling like our human bodies. But on the inside, the tabernacle was the place of the very presence of God. So think of Jesus. He's the tabernacle. From the outside looking on, it just looks like any old person. In fact, Isaiah says you wouldn't even recognize him in a crowd. We tend to think of like the 12 disciples and Jesus in front like floating, right? Come on, guys, keep up, all right? Get on my hover game, all right? But there's none of that. Isaiah says he has no form or comeliness to him. Judas had to kiss him to identify him, right? This is the one. On the outside, he's a man. He's a carpenter. He's a son. He's a brother. He's a neighbor. I love how the way the message says it, uh, that God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. How's your neighbors? Good. God's one of them. Great neighbor. Helps me. Fixes my broken. You know, it's like, think about that. Neighbor God. That's Jesus. On the outside, nothing about him that would draw us to him particularly, but within him, like the tabernacle, was the very presence of God, the very glory of God. So, so much so that in Matthew 17, he shows the disciples. Check it out. He reveals, he's transfigured before them. They behold his glory. That's what John is referring to. This is the incarnation of Jesus. And we know that it was all to do this. You see where it ends here? He says it was ultimately to come in body and bring grace. I love that. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received, it says, grace for grace. Grace on grace on grace on grace. That's the idea. Greater increasing levels. It's not like as a Christian you get God's love here. It's grace upon grace. It's love upon love upon love. What hope. And Jesus came to initiate that relationship with us. The law was given through Moses, John will say. But through God becoming a man into this dark world as the light, this Jesus, he came to represent something about God that no longer now is it man, do what you have to do to get to me. That's what Moses had. But now it's, look what I have done to save you. Look at Jesus. Look at my grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the unmerited favor and love of God that's poured out on you. What do I do to earn it? It's on you right now. <laughs> it's poured out upon us right now through Jesus. And here's what John gives us as an invitation. This is where we'll close this last verse. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So this is what this whole series will be about. Um, and I just want to say that I think this is an invitation to us. 
Through Jesus, you see God. You see the Word made flesh. You see what God is really like, most displayed in His grace on the cross. But here's what John says, come see. Come take a look at who Jesus is. Where have you been looking? What has your attention been on? What sort of images have you had of God? And how is it that Jesus wants to reveal himself to you? Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.